Dale, Chamberlain of All Ages, and Walter Payne Radio presents the greatest podcast in the world, The Marketech Samuel Plan, The Devil's Advocate Shinobi, The Lunatic King Maverick, and Single Syllable Mother, The Right Side of the Pond. Sub loads of pain and welcome to the right side of the pond. It is Friday and we're going to give you something historical um, this time around. So this is going to be a, a two part podcast. This one we're going to do um, the first half of it tonight. and We're going to do the second half of it once kind of fast lane is out of the way. Um, what we decide we're going to do is actually have a look at an early look, I guess, at the matches of the decade because we are newsflash in 2019 which is pretty crazy so we are only um a year away from a kind of new wrestling decade so it's gonna be interesting to kind of have a look back and see what the what the trends have been and what kind of uh ratio of matches from each year kind of ones that stand out so yeah we're just gonna kind of freestyle this really and, and talk about um, some matches over that time frame that we liked, <clears throat> and maybe some things that they, you know, showed where, where the company was heading, and so on and so forth. Um, so obviously we start we start with 2010. Um, now I was kind of like having a little scroll through um, earlier on, and I guess probably the first like big match that 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 sort of stands out that year um, would be. The WrestleMania 26 Shawn Michaels retirement match with The Undertaker, um, which seems like a pretty significant um, match. Now, you've written about that extensively in uh, 101 Matches to See Before You Die. Um, so, I mean, what, I mean, what are your thoughts about that match now? I know it's something which you were, you know, you were kind of very much a believer in. Um, at the time and when you wrote the book, uh, you still feel the same way about it? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, on uh, you've started off the pond with an opportunity for me to plug my other podcast. Um, so thank you for that. Uh, Sports Entertainment is dead. I'm going to be looking at this match and indeed all four matches of what I frame as the tetralogy with some real-time watch-alongs in the two weeks that are available between Fastlane uh, and and uh, my Fastlane review and my WrestleMania pre-show. So uh, do keep, stay tuned for that. But um, it's, I think it's a wonderful match. I mean, I, I said at the time, you know, uh, that I thought it was uh, heretical as this is, superior to what I find to be the rather, frankly, overblown reputation of what is still, a, nonetheless, a very good match between the two at WrestleMania 25, but I prefer the 26 match. I think it tells a tighter story in the ring. It seems to have a bit more focus. Uh, it plays on... Uh, it It benefits from having the foundation of the match from the year before to sort of bounce off of. Uh, and as someone who, who likes to, obviously, you know, artistically interpret... Uh, wrestling matches in a manner that maybe wasn't necessarily intended. I think there's a lot of value in it, particularly. I mean, I couldn't think of a more fitting farewell for Shawn Michaels, of all people, uh, than to see him, you know, slap in the face the very embodiment of, you know, wrestling, old school wrestling tradition. Like that, isn't that just the most wonderful microcosm for that man's 
career when you think about what he achieved both in terms of you know following Bret Hart to the top as a smaller guy through the stuff he did as a member of DX as well of course and now even now continues to shape the industry by defying convention as a, as a, a member of the NXT staff so uh, I, I think that the match you know it, it kind of I guess it, you could criticize it for for being one of the matches that probably helped usher in this age of excess that just drives me so round the bend, uh, because certainly, you know, the, the 26 and 25 matches both are excessive in their own ways. Uh, you know, and, and the 25 match in particular is just 15 minutes solid of false finish at the back end and finishes being exchanged. And, um, you know, wrestling 26 kind of peppers them throughout the whole thing. It breaks it up a little bit more, which is one reason why I think it's, it's better. Um, but I think you'd be hard-pressed, like you say, Mav, not to... If you're looking back over the best matches of the last decade, you'd be hard-pressed to say this wasn't the the, the, the first cornerstone of that kind of a, of a list. I think for the reasons you've explained, I mean, because I guess when you look at something like an all-decade list of matches, you're trying to look for the trends and for the the tropes that kind of defined the era so if you look back at attitude you'd be looking at you know all these run-ins and um interference and kind of messy finishes and so on and so forth um you know violent you know sort of ex- more excessive violence etc if you're looking back at new gem you'd be looking at you know this sort of top-notch technical wrestling um you know experimenting with different you know with different types of champions at the top people like brett and sean um, and of course, going all the way back to rock and wrestling, you'd be looking at, at kind of Hogan and, and Warrior and the land of the big men and all that sort of thing. So I think Age of Excess is in some ways one of the bigger trends that we've had, not only in these WrestleMania epics, which is where this sort of thing uh, at the beginning was pretty much confined to. But, you know, if you watch, for example, an NXT TakeOver now, you'll find that maybe all four matches will borrow quite heavily from the approach that that Taker and Michaels took in this match. And it's interesting because, I mean, I am not a fan of the tetralogy, as, as, as you term it. Like, I probably, I prefer the two Michaels matches to the two Triple H matches. I can certainly tell <laughs> Stay you Stay down! Um, but, you know, I think, I think, you know, as you say, Shawn Michaels retiring for a second time. The first time he retired, he went out with a bit of a whimper because he couldn't, you know, he had a ruined back and he couldn't perform the type of match that, you know, he was used to performing. And, you know, Steve Austin was limited in that match as well. And it maybe wasn't the sort of curtain raiser for Austin's ascension that it might have been. Um, you imagine what might have been had Michaels been fully healthy when that, you know, when that match took place. But here it is um, fitting that he gets a kind of, you know, half hour um, epic as his kind of closing thing. So, you know, it, there are things about it, like I think three tombstones, including what was it? Is it two off the top rope? Uh, two off the middle rope as well? <laughs> like, I don't, I don't think he does one off the middle rope. Oh, no, he just jumps, doesn't he? He just jumps. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, does, he does one where he jumps. That's the la- That's the one that finishes Sean off. Yeah, John sort of climbs up him and then slaps him in the face and then pisses Taker off. So he does like a <laughs> jumping tombstone. <laughs> you know, and I think you know that might be a, a a little bit much. But 
you know, all, all, all credit to them. You know, they understood the spot they were being put in because I guess the thing about the 25 matches and the reason probably why it's venerated so much is because people weren't expecting it. I don't, you know, like it was kind of like, oh, right, Michael's the Undertaker. That's pretty cool. And then suddenly they delivered this match that was like, I think I've determined it as a wow match on the night and it never seems the same afterwards. I think that's probably my my main take on it, I guess. Um, whereas this one, I think, has maybe got a bit more substance. More substance, more, I hesitate to use the word, but more subtlety uh, for what that's worth. Um, I, I mean, for my money, I think WrestleMania 25 is venerated because it's The Undertaker and Shawn Michaels, frankly. And I think if, if you had to, you know, if, if Matt Hardy and Jeff Hardy wrestled that exact match, but with their own finishes, you know, I think it's it, it, it feels self-evident it wouldn't get, you know, quite the hype that that 25 match gets but that you know i'm not here to you know we're not here obviously to undercut other people's opinions or love for what was undoubtedly on the night as you say an, an exhilarating uh, an exhilarating match i was jumping out of my chair quite literally as i'm sure a lot of people were on the night but like you say when you revisit it after the facts and, that, and that's gonna that is going to plague you know a lot of matches particularly in the back half of this decade when this age of excess has really gained traction you know, all these NXT matches that get lauded, all those John Cena US Open matches, you know, that get lauded, that scene, that horrific scene or AJ Styles SummerSlam match that everybody loved, the the Kevin Owens Cena matches, all these quote unquote classics, you know, when they get visited in 10, 15 years' time, I think a lot of fans, you know, the, the Maven plan in 15 years, whoever they may be, will probably sit there scratching their head going, I don't get why this was so loved at the time, because when you, remo- you know, my opinion is, you know, the best art, whatever kind of art is, is, is timeless and is as effective, you know, 50 years after the fact as it is at the moment that it happens. Uh, and, um, you know, and that isn't something that I think can apply to a lot of the most popular wrestling matches of the last decade, at least the last half of the last decade. And indeed the matches that you and I tend to gravitate towards the more cerebral stuff uh, that that will age well, that will be as good in 15 years as it was at the moment. That's the kind of stuff that tends to get uh, more heavily criticised. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I think I think people's attention spans, I guess, in this age of you know this age of, of streaming and YouTube and you know, just I guess people's attention spans are just different, and and that type of match with a lot of hard hitting moves, I guess, has just gained traction as people's attention spans have declined. But as you say, like um, the sorts of matches that we favour are maybe ones which um, which age better. Um, looking, you know, looking through two thousand and ten, I guess the thing that that really strikes me is that, is that a lot of it feels. Um, you know, quite mediocre and quite um, and quite samey. You know, I guess we were in the sort of the back end of that malaise that you kind of had between 2006 and 2010, where it was kind of the company was functioning, but it was just doing. It almost felt like it was going through the motions in a lot of ways, a lot of the time. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> quite. Except with maybe I wonder, I wonder lesser what those talent. Periods both have in common, by the way. <laughs> Dying brand split, yeah, quite. Um, a few, a couple of prominent feuds that were going on at the time. Um, the, the sort of the Batista exit feud, 
um, and the CM Punk um, Rey Mysterio feud are, are both ones, I suppose, which have got um, a fair bit of merit. I think the Batista, yeah, I mean, the Batista Cena stuff I found terribly disappointing considering what it was, I, what I felt conceptually it should have been, um, which is breaks one of my own sort of, you know, holy commandments of, of ju- not don't judge something for what you wanted it to be. But um, I know you, you prefer the WrestleMania 26 match to, to me. I mean, or rather, let me rephrase that, you have a bit more affection for it than I do. But the, I mean, the last man standing match, the two of them have stands up quite well. Uh, Cena tends to excel in that kind of environment where he doesn't have to think too much as a performer. Um, at the CM Punk, I don't really remember much of that. I mean, I remember the the mask, like mask versus hair match. I think they did it. Yeah. Extreme Rules or some such. That's the really was, good was, one. Was pretty good. Um, but I mean, I, Extreme Rules as a pay per view tended to fare very well in terms of match quality through this last decade, actually, and and is probably one of the pay per views. Uh, that stands out for that because it, it's a gimmick pay-per-view, but, but, you know, you often got those kind of sleep hits on, I mean, extreme rules 2012 is a fantastic show pretty much end to end. Um, and, and every extreme rules feels like it offers up at least one minor classic at the, at, at its very worst. Um, but 2010, like you say, you're at the back end of that awful, awful period, the product ground to an absolute halt, uh, that it felt like something drastically needed to change which of course would happen the following year um and i kind of said it comically but 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 there is truth in the fact that you know where we are now has a lot in common with where we were then yeah no i agree i agree completely even down to the fact that you know the nexus um match at SummerSlam. you know if if this um gargano champa ricochet and uh, black stuff is is heading in that sort of a direction. It's almost exactly mirrors, you know, the um, the, the Nexus stuff that we has with, um, you know, that six uh, like how many people was it in the match? Ten person elimination match was it? Or was it even the Nexus that? match? Yeah, it was. It was something ridiculous, like ten or something. Um, and and I guess I mean. I think I'm right in saying I know Massa is a big fan of that match. Like we, I think we've all defended that match in the past, have we not? Yeah, I mean, I've, I, I like it. I wouldn't say I love it particularly. Um, it's obviously got that ridiculous ending that now lives in infamy. Indeed. Um, uh, you know, greatest of all time, John Cena would, wouldn't you know? Um, uh, and but I mean, I'd, I'd struggle to really kind of tell you outside of the Brian return. I'd and and Bret Hart. I mean, Bret Hart. Obviously, that debacle with Vince McMahon at WrestleMania 26. But I washed the taste of that away for me as a Bret Hart fan because he has a pretty decent showing for a guy in his, you know, whatever he is, 50s, 60s. He's had a stroke and several concussions. He has a really cool little exchange with Heath Slater. Um, it's a match with its flaws, if I remember rightly, but it's enjoyable enough. Yeah, it's, I mean, actually, I mean, actually, I, go guess, I guess, sorry to cut you off, man, what, just to finish my thought, I guess it's. And I was talking about this um, in my Elimination Chamber uh, performance art review on SCID. It's it's the kind of match, the memory of which is very much defined, if not overshadowed by the way it concludes. I said on SCID that a lot of matches, like a lot of feuds, 
or, or books or films or, or TV shows or whatever tend to be their legacy tends to get defined more with how they end than with anything else. And I think this is a picture perfect example. Yeah, funny enough, I was thinking the same thing about Rumble 2014 just today. Actually, I was revisiting that for a for a column, and um, you know, it's it's a fantastic Rumble that will never get remembered as such because of the ending. Which we said at the time. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, so uh, just I guess the, the other thing about the back end of 2010 is you get this kind of mid-card rise of Daniel Bryan. Um, he has that fantastic triple threat submissions count anywhere match with uh, Morrison and Miz and then a match with Dolph Ziggler at Bragging Rights, which is an absolute absolute stormer which was you know back in the days when like Ziggler would be a star you know Brian was was on the rise as well and you know that was a one of those few examples from that era of a mid-card match really kind of connecting with people as I remember it seems like people have forgotten about it now but at the time it really made waves in the IWC that much it did and it was because it's a very good match and I'm glad you've actually because I forgot about it and I'm glad you've, you've jogged my memory it was my favorite match of that year um and I think even dot com uh, voted it uh, joint match of the year with Shawn Michaels and The Undertaker at WrestleMania. And while, you know, you don't put a lot of stock in dot-com articles, because nine times, especially the lists, nine times out of ten are just absolute hogwash, um, you know, as a source, that shows you WWE's own mindset about that match, that they put that on the same plinth as, as The Undertaker and Shawn from WrestleMania. You know, I mean, that's that's indicative of something. No, absolutely. And and that's the thing. It was kind of I guess maybe you might you might see it as a sign that they were starting to, you know, look towards that that kind of generation below the, the Cedars and the Batistas and so on and try, and starting to have a look at uh, uh, who might be the people that could come next. Um, I think I think that match probably made some waves internally as well, because 2011 kicks off for me with another one of my favorite matches of the decade, which was the, the world heavyweight championship match between edge and Ziggler at that year's Royal rumble. Absolutely. Which is, which is a, a fantastically frenetic, uh, pri- it's a prime example of that age of excess style of match done well and done effectively. I feel, cause there is a lot of freneticism in it. There's a lot of false finish in it. You know, it kind of has a lot of the traits that I tend to criticise matches for more than a lot of the traits I tend to lo- love matches for. But it, but it's done in an intelligent fashion. They, you know, the, the, there's the whole edge can't use the spear sort of intrigue behind it. It's and and ultimately it proves to be Edge's last great match, last great singles match at least. No. So it has a certain historic value to it as well. Absolutely, I think the thing was is that the key thing what you just mentioned there is that. You know, Edge was an incredibly intelligent performer, and of course, he cut his teeth wrestling these crash bang wallet TLC matches, which nevertheless needed somebody to hold them together. And you always got the impression that it was Edge and Christian that that, that held the directions of those matches together. And so, you know, Edge was always able to take someone like you know someone like a John Cena and you know and get something you know really interesting out of them. And the same with um. The same with The Undertaker and, you know, the Batista and the various people that Edge used to tangle with. And I think the thing is, when you take someone that had as much talent as Dolph Ziggler and someone that's much ring smarts as Edge, that I think that, you know, it was, the, it was a real grand tradition, isn't it? The the challenge of the month at Royal Rumble. You know, it's that become spot, something of one, yeah. Yeah, that spot has always been, you know, one of my 
one of my favorite things obviously there are less successful examples like you know hardcore holly <laughs> 2004 <laughs> <laughs> but you know there are good lord <laughs> what were they thinking <laughs> Yeah, so there are less there are less successful examples, but but um, when you take someone that's that's just coming into his prime, like Zegloss, and you, you stick up against a, a, a canny veteran like Edge, you're going to get good things happening. Um, yeah, 2011 is an interesting one actually. I guess it's probably um, uh, the year that I started to to kind of think about wrestling more critically. Is where I started to think about um, whether I should start taking the plunge into uh, into writing about wrestling and. Yeah, you know, I sort of ummed and ahed about it for a year before I finally CF debuted in 2012. But it's, it's it's always I always think back on it fondly because of that fact that I started to actually kind of look at the matches, you know, in a more I guess in a more kind of critical technical way. Well, in in that case, I take everything I've said back. That match has got a lot to answer for. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, WrestleMania. 27 again is obviously a um <laughs> a, a big i mean and the thing is obviously is, we're, is, we're looking at this objectively you, show you desperately want to stay down man you know I, i've i've tried really hard to reevaluate it and i think that like i think it comes down to this right i think that show i was so kind of desperate for a kind of you know a big a big push for cm punk and then when he kind of lost to bloody Randy Orton of all people, I think it just <laughs> soured me on the whole show. And so by the time you actually get to Undertaker Triple H, I was not in the best of moods. And then they wrestled that match, which was not much like I was desperate to, to see wrestled in that kind of a way. Um, but actually, when you look back at it more objectively, which I've tried to do, you know, Edge Edge versus Del Rio is, is you know, a, a kind of excellent curtain jerker it's a shame that it's a curtain jerker over a world title i mean that's a bit ridiculous well, quite, but yeah. um another but another another indication of why the product needed to change indeed but it's a good match very good match um Rhodes mysterio is a real hipster classic i think um and and autumn punk now that i've kind of got enough distance not to be salty about it is a is a fantastic mid-card classic in that kind of christian jericho vain um so actually you know i think wrestlemania 27 has got a lot to recommend it um and you know cole versus jerry lawler what a classic stone cold classic (laughs) isn't it 13 minutes the the fact that he gave that 13 minutes like that's what that's what never ceases that's what never ever ceases to amaze me they gave that much 13 minutes probably 30 minutes when you add in all the shenanigans around it as well oh my god Um, yeah, I mean, for me, the the because I wrote a column many, 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 many years ago. I can't remember how long back now. Um, sort of, it was only one, but it was sort of trying to reappraise WrestleMania 27, which was heavily lambasted at the time. And I remember watching it on the night and feeling kind of deflated after the show. I'd enjoyed, you know, large elements of it, but it just didn't feel. It felt like a letdown, very tangibly on the night. Having said that. Um, you know, my takeaway from it historically is that, <laughs> and and it, this might make you chuckle, um, it was so refreshing to have a WrestleMania without money in the bank on it for the first <laughs> <Yeah, true>. time. <laughs> for the first time in in and and I know I've got a reputation for hating that that particular kind of ladder match, especially, but you know they they'd done that WWE thing that's become more of an entrenched habit. 
ever since of it worked the first time so we'll do it every single year and it just kept happening and happening and happening and it became an easy way you know to get all these mid carders they couldn't be bothered to write storylines for onto these wrestlemania cards without having to put any effort in and it got it went from six people to seven people to eight people and eventually it ended up at 10 people at 26 and it just got to be ridiculous and what WrestleMania 27 showed was the value you can get out of just booking a few story-driven undercard matches instead. And like you say, it's a shame the World Heavyweight Championship got treated the way it did. But by that point, you know, as we've discussed many times on the show before, it was basically like the, the, the latter-day Intercontinental title anyway. So it's a bit like an IC title match opening the show. Um and, you know, Rhodes and, and Ray, I remember being really well fleshed out on television at the time because Rhodes was doing the whole dashing thing and Ray hit him with the knee brace during the 619 and stuff. So that was really fun. And then, you know, Orton Punk uh, was was kind of a bit wishy-washy in its story, but was nonetheless story driven all the same. Uh, and the match has turned out great on the night. I have a lot of love. I mean, the Triple H Undertaker match 27 is actually one of my favorites. Uh, and, uh, you know, that may surprise some people uh, listening less familiar with my uh, method of watching wrestling. But again, check out SCID in a few weeks uh, for more on why that is, because I could fill an hour just talking about it. Um, but I think, you know, as, as, again, as coming at it from a performance art point of view, it's 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 right on my street. And there's a lot to dissect there. Um I mean, to be fair, even the main event between John Cena and The Miz is not a stinker. It's not awful. I mean, it's not great by any means. But no. I think if you know, Miz hadn't concussed himself, I think it could have been. I think it could have been even better. But it's pretty clear that he's kind of out of his wits for half of it. <laughs> yeah. So that's my big takeaway from WrestleMania 27. Was it? You know, and of course, by the time you get to 30, they do the Battle Royal, and 31, they're doing the ladder match again, and it's. You know, it, I guess a microcosm of how circular WWE's been this last decade, but uh, we seem to have ended up where we started. Um, you know, um, the thing that really strikes about this show, though, is is imagine how good a show it would have been had they actually put Sheamus and Bryan for the US title well, on well, the main card. I mean, yeah. you'd have been looking at a, you know, you take 10 minutes off that Michael Cole and Jerry Lawler nonsense, and, you know, you could have had a, a real you know, a real excellent mid-card match to go alongside the other excellent mid-card matches. And suddenly and you'd be looking at 27 as one of the better WrestleManias of the last 15 years. Same as well with, you know, you could get rid of Lola and Cole altogether and sub, sub it in for Ziggler versus Morrison, who were embroiled in a weird six mixed tag match with Snooki from oh, whatever God, the yeah. it was. Jersey so, Shaw. <laughs> you know, if they'd have done that as well, like you say, it would be it would have been a phenomenal event. But 2011, I mean, ultimately, it's it's remembered for one thing, and it's remembered for one thing for a reason, of course, which is, you know, the pie bomb promo and that money in the bank, 2011 angle. Um, but before you even get to that, something that's kind of languished under the shadow of that is the the Christian Orton feud. That oh yeah, which, which just offered up, you know, classic after classic after classic, none of which we talk about anymore. Oh, well, I think we do on this show, don't we? Well, we do. Well, the, but, the royal we in terms of wrestling. Um, I think, I think, yeah, 2011, again, I, it's, it's the opposite of 2010. Because when you look at 2011, you find good match after good match after good match on these pay-per-view cards. Because, you know, again, you said about extreme rules. Um, Christian B. Del Rio in that latter match for the vacant World Heavyweight ti- title that, um, that Edge that drops. Yeah, is, is a fantastic Fantastic match. You know, Autumn v. Punk's last man standing match is very, very good. Um, you know, even the cage match with Cena, Miz and Morrison 
where he announces Osama bin Laden's death at the end of it. Like, even that is a is a pretty good main event. Um, so that was a damn good show. And then, like you say, Christian and Orton, when that kicks into gear, um, you know, it, it really, the year really gets off to a fantastic start. Because they start off with those baby face matches, like at Over the Limit. And I remember that Over the Limit match has got some of the best near falls um, I can remember. Like, it just, I remember being absolutely kind of sucked into that match and really just, you know, as a fan, you know, a real kind of, you know, just a mark wanting Christian to win that match and being so disappointed when he came up short again. And it just led into that brilliant story where Christian was gradually more heelish before he just went, you know, he just went full heel. And there was always that bit of controversy that meant that, that they had to, um, that they had Give to kind of have another match, match, one more match. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, those matches were fantastic. And they just, of course, they lasted all the way to SummerSlam. Um, when they had that epic no DQ, or was it a street? I can't remember what it was booked as. But yeah, they're, they're, they're all was, yeah, well, the same thing, aren't they? No holds barred or whatever it, whatever it was called. Yeah, I think it wasn't labelled a street fight, actually. Funny enough, listeners, um, I don't plan to remember this, but um, when we were uh, first kind of um, talking about starting the pond, and we were looking at, um, you know, at doing the 101 matches sort of podcast series. Um, when Plan said, let's do a practice with any match, just choose a match. I gave him two and I said, oh, we can look at um, Benoit, we, Benoit v Jericho from Rumble 01. Or we can look at um, Christian v uh, Autumn from SummerSlam. And, uh, and Plan was like, OK, yeah, let's, let's, do a, let's do a podcast on Benoit v um, Jericho yeah, and see how it turns out. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's just a funny thing. I remember that was because that was the alternate was the Christian Orton match when we didn't end up uh, practicing with. <laughs> I I remember very distinctly because I remember at the time I didn't have a headset with a mic, so I borrowed off of a friend uh, like a like a handheld like a proper microphone um, that I was speaking into, and then when I listened, there was a moment in I don't know if you remember this, but there was a moment in the podcast where I asked a, a question of you, and I and it there was a long 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 silence. Uh, and then I asked it again when I listened to the recording back. It's because I hadn't spoken into the into the microphone, so you didn't catch half of what I said. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> I mean, it's good, it's good we, we managed to get those teething problems out of the way before we actually started the ponds, really, isn't it? Um, well, I well, you know, my surname is planned for a reason. Indeed, indeed. Um, so yeah, that that feud was amazing. And then, of course, as you say, CM Punk's 2011 is. It's mad to say that it's underrated, but of course everyone remembers it for the character stuff. But if you look at his matches in 2011, he has that he has the two matches with Orton, um, and then he has a random match with Rey Mysterio at Capital Punishment, which is brilliant. And then he goes into the Cena stuff. Um, so I mean, obviously, yeah, we need to talk about Money in the Bank 2011, don't we? Because it's not just Punk and Cena's, you know, epic main events that show. It's also Christian versus Orton. Um, and it's also Daniel Bryan winning the Money in the Bank ladder match, all in the same show. Absolutely, Money in the Bank 2011 is is an historic pay per view, um, and to me, uh, you know, I mean, King of the Ring was obviously the fifth big. You know, you've got the big four, and, and King of the Ring was the big fifth for so long. Money in the Bank has kind of inherited that, and and you look at a show like 2011. Um, and is and that's indicative why Money in the Bank has very strangely become an event around which there has been some big historic moments and matches. Um, and 2011 is probably 
you know, there's, I own it on disc. In fact, it's one of the events I decided to own on disc because of its, you know, because of its uh, its historic qualities, uh, both in terms of, you know, I mean, it's 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 absolutely the beginning of the reality era. You know, you've got Daniel, like you say, Daniel Bryan winning Money in the Bank the same night CM Punk wins the WWE Championship. Like, you know, that's that feels fatalistic for that. Um, and I mean, I don't really remember the the actual Money in the Bank match or matches that year. Uh, I can't remember if there's one or two that year. Um, yeah, there's two. I, Del Rio won the uh, the Raw oh, one. Of course, <laughs> I remember the Raw one being very nasty actually, but the, the SmackDown one I remember being all right. Yeah, um, it was good. It was good. It was kind of interesting because it was the bit when you look at it, it was typical SmackDown at the time. They were all mid carders. It was Brian Rhodes, Slater, Gabriel, Kane, Sin Cara, Sheamus, Barrett. So. You know, I think Wade Barrett is the hot favourite, which kind of tells you <laughs> yes, <I remember laughs> like what them. things are like at the time. Yeah, absolutely. And then Brian won it, of course. And then, uh, you know, the I mean, the Christian Orton match is really good as well, particularly because it's the one where Christian wins the title by getting Orton to disqualified. Yeah. Um, and it's such a cheap way of winning it. It's brilliant. Then Orton does this fantastic beat down after the match that's really effective. The, the title match between Punk and Cena is a testament to... Um, you know, how much drama a ticking clock can add to any narrative. Um, it reminds me of the final act of one of my favorite films, which is Star Wars Rogue One, which came out a few years ago um, and is the prequel uh, to, to the original Star Wars film. Uh, and that adds a ticking clock or feels like it adds a ticking clock in the final act of that film. And it just ratchets the drama up unbelievably. Uh, and that's very much, I feel, what happens in, in Cena Punk is you is you. And Cole emphasizes that as well as as CM Punk makes his entrance is that, you know, at midnight tonight, CM Punk's contract with WWE expires. Will he be the WWE champion at that point or not? We know he's not going to resign, uh, which was such an innovative angle for WWE to do. They'd never done anything like that. I know I think maybe a similar thing had happened from my understanding with Punk on the Indies at some point, but maybe someone can can tweet in and educate me there. But, um, you know, and then, you know, you had um, the, the the heavily partisan crowd in play. It was in Chicago, you know, so you knew you were going to be a frit. The match itself, when I watch it back, I mean, as, as a Punk fan, it's your prerogative, obviously, to, to love it. But uh, I do really, really, really like it. In fact, I picked it as one of my... Uh, my uh, uh, matches to take with me if I was stranded on a desert island uh, when I did a, a, a desert island discs column with primetime in, in the LOP columns forum because I, I, I have a lot of love for it but I do feel it's a little scrappy and a little rough around the edges and I, and I feel like that's tainted it a little bit I mean for me as the years have gone on for me what this is is because I think structurally the matches have a lot of similarities uh, and even down to the fact there's a partisan crowd and there's a sense of occasion about it, it reminds me, you're going to hate this, it reminds me very much of the first Rock Cena match that would happen some months later at WrestleMania 28. But it's like a, a, a grungier, more alternative version of what is, you know, it's it's like the 28 match is the Hollywood version of, the, of this reality uh, of Punk versus Cena, which feels rough and it, and, it, and rugged and, and benefits from the fact it feels rough and rugged, as a lot of Punk's matches did, like with Brock Lesnar at SummerSlam 2013. I, I guess my only kind of uh, real criticism of it, though, is I have always found it a bit of a shame that they had to just shove and almost crowbar in the Vince McMahon tries to Montreal 
the the you know with John Laurie Nitis thing, and I felt like that just kind of took a little bit of the the edge off for me. Um, but it was a, it, you know Punk's reaction when he wins the title is incredible, and that last image of him sort of blowing Vince a kiss as he as he as he straddles the barrier, runs away out of the building. It's I mean it's a it's an iconic match, iconic in the truest sense of the word. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, actually, I, I, I totally see your comparison. I mean, and, and actually, the, the first Rock Cena match, I don't, I don't mind at all. Um, second one that I, I, I have a bit a problem with, but um, the um, what it always felt like to me was, you know, there's this mythical thing, the uh, the WWE main event style. And if someone had said to me, pick one match that you know represents to you the WWE main event style. I think I would probably pick this match. Now it's the it's a hyped up and souped up version of that match with an incredible contextual surroundings of a partisan crowd and a wrestler that that might have been leaving and might not have been leaving. Who knows? And and all of those those elements of drama that you described. But nevertheless, it's a match which feels like the quintessential WWE match. You know, this is what WWE do. They do stories. It's not it's not like, you know, Tanahashi v. Um, Okada when it comes to the purity of its wrestling, but it doesn't half tell a good story. And that's what WWE have always done, or historically have always done better than anybody else. <laughs> and... Um, and I think that's the thing is, and, and sometimes, you know, you're just in that moment where a, a performer is so in the zone uh, and punk was that that night, you know, it was almost like, um, you know, a term we use, you know, in sort of literature mythology It's like his apotheosis. It was the, the you know, he was always turning into a god in front of our eyes. And, and Cena, of course, he'd, he'd been through that before in, you know, with Rob Van Dam in the ECW um one night stand crowd and, and Cena's very good when when he's in that situation where the crowd is not split but outwardly hostile he's very very good at playing off that and he did play the heel in that match and I thought he did it very well and I think there was a period of time around this point where Cena was actually very watchable um, and yeah, it soon went back to normal, unwatchable John Cena again. But well, but... <laughs> well, what I was about to say is, I, I very vividly remember it, uh, uh, when all of this was going down, um, because we it, it did feel. I mean, Cena was just coming out of that horrific program where he basically destroyed the Miz's career, um, and it felt like you were you were hitting. I feel like you were hitting peak John Cena in terms of his unwatchability. And I remember very oddly, it's weird that I remember this. Chavo Guerrero, who wasn't, I think, with the company at the time, did like a blog post or a social media post or something, uh, imploring uh, Cena to to basically wrestle a good match and to not coast. Um, I think coasting was the term he used, actually. Um, And this was, you talk about the apotheosis of, of CM Punk. To me, this was the true sort of turning point in Cena's career where he started to move closer towards what he ended up becoming, you know, it's kind of gone too far the other way at this point with the U S open and the AJ styles matches, but, um, credit where it's due. He kind of, like you say, he rose to the occasion here and, and there was a real, real expectation that this match needed to deliver something special. I remember that very, I, I was so, this was such a vivid vividly memorable 
uh, time to be a part, to be embroiled fully in the IWC and as a member of LOP and everything else. Um, and that that sensation that it absolutely had to deliver was there. It and WWE were very conscious of it. I remember the the T-shirts at the event that they were selling the CM Punk Best in the World T-shirts, and it had the date on the back. Yeah, you know, so they they were very they were very very aware of how singular this this occasion was. And this match, as a result of all of these things combined, essentially almost stands apart in like in in a in a class of maybe. I don't know, maybe as few as three or four matches. Like, this is Andre Hogan, WrestleMania 3, Brett, Sean in Montreal territory that you're dealing with with this match. Like, that's how important historically it has proven itself to be. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's just a, it's such a combination of circumstances, you know, that you get this incredible performance from you know, from both of them on this incredibly important occasion that happens to also begin an era, you know, this is the reality era coming, screaming into life um, right here. Um, I mean, looking at, at the rest of, um, of, of 2011, um, it obviously goes off the rails a little bit as they kind of have, you know, all sorts of stuff with, um, you know, uh, they basically, wrestle again at SummerSlam and they wrestle the same match but not quite as good um, then you get all this stuff with Triple H and Kevin Nash and Cena goes off and, and has some matches with Del Rio and, and I guess really it all gets back on track at Hell in a Cell where um, you get Punk versus Del Rio and they wrestle I guess the type of matches that Del Rio would wrestle for the rest of his first stint with the company really they were just fantastic hard hitting technical wrestling matches and it was like del rio became this kind of do you know what he reminded me of he reminded me of like the bulldog in his heel run okay just that but he he i think he offered so much value in that upper mid card role at that time um and yeah the, the sort of the uh, survivor series was the one on del rio punk match sorry not hell in a cell um and that's that's a terrific match i really do think so I, I mean, to be honest, I would, I would really struggle to pass comment on it because I, I don't remember it at all. Fair enough. Um, of course, on the <laughs> other side, on the other side of the uh, of the card, of course, um, we had suddenly had this Mark Henry v Big Show match um, at Vengeance, which came out of absolutely nowhere yes. um, and <laughs> was just this bizarre, um, fast-paced big man match. Which, yeah, wow. What a match! Uh, well, we—if you remember when we did our best, like under fifteen-minute matches podcast special with Doc many, many moons ago, this made the top ten list, um, and that was of all time because it is—it is one of those ones that just comes, like you say, comes out of left field. Really, kind of was uh, the the epitome of that kind of uh, bizarrely excellent title run that Mark Henry had when he found his foot in that year with the whole pain angle and everything. Uh, and yeah, like you say, just a, a tremendously athletic, cerebral big man match wrestled as if they were half their size. Yeah, I mean, you got top rope elbow drops. Like I think that was at Survivor Series. Uh, yeah, right. I think the Vengeance one was where the ring collapsed. Uh, they did like, oh, some, like, that's right. the ring, the ring, and then bizarrely, Cena and Del Rio wrestled the last man standing match in a collapsed ring afterwards, which was <laughs> which or a false kind of match or something. But, it, I think it was um, last man standing, yeah. So looking at, at 2012, um, I guess WrestleMania 28 is the first 
the first place we need to look at. We've touched on Rock v John Cena already. Um, I mean, this is a this is a, a, a pay per view WrestleMania 28 that has two half hour epics on it: Undertaker, Triple H, um, and Rock v John Cena. It is one of those ones where it's a WrestleMania of very few matches ultimately because the big ones take up so much of the time. Of course, the Hell in a Cell plus entrances is is closer to an hour than than half an hour. Um, but yeah, so we talk about Rock, Rock versus Cena first of all then. I think obviously it's a match that people had huge expectations of because Hollywood Rock the last time had delivered, you know, the, that brilliant farewell for Steve Austin. Um, and so I think despite the fact that um, Rock hadn't wrestled in all of that time, people still thought the old Rock would show up. I don't think he did, but I think Cena did a really good job in carrying him to an approximation of that. Oh, that's controversial. I, I, I wouldn't say Cena carried him at all. I think, you know, you're always going to have ring rust when you come back after a, what was it, almost 10-year layoff, a nine-year layoff. Um, but, you know, I mean, The Rock, if, if you were to have, and it's, it's such an elusive conversation that it's almost farcical in itself to have it, but if you want to talk about, you know, who is the greatest of all time, encompassing every fact that you might want to consider, then, then The Rock tops the list for me. And I think that a lot of people, because he's so famous for the, you know, the promos and the and the comedy and the wit, um, uh, people have, and, it, and because his heyday was the Attitude Era, where kind of the frenetic brawl was very much the fashion of the time, much like Austin, suitably, I think people hugely underestimate The Rock's in-ring talents, generally speaking. Not not necessarily about this match, just in general. I think people forget how good he actually is. You know, he started off... There's a reason why he started off as the blue chipper um, in, in New Gen. You know, the guy could wrestle, man. Um, Nine-year layoff, I think he puts in a, 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 a pretty damn good performance. Oh, I yeah, think. me too. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that he... You know, I'm not suggesting that he was he was some bum that, that got carried around the <laughs> ring for the whole match. Um, but I do I do think that for all of my criticisms of John Cena, of which I have many, I, I do think that he was very, very important for this match, you know, being a success. Um, and I think Cena did rise to the occasion of, you know, of this being like the, the maybe the one main event where Cena wasn't, the, he wasn't, you know, like he wasn't the biggest star, right? He wasn't the I, biggest star in WWE in this match, and I think he yeah. he he rose to that. I think I have held um, a theory for some time now um, that there's a part of John Cena that sort of secretly idolizes The Rock a little bit, um, and I've it's pure conjecture, but you know he's he's said that the comments he made in the press about The Rock that were controversial all those years ago were in part an effort to try and get The Rock to come back. How much you believe that or not, I'm not sure, but um, that's nonetheless what he's said. The comparisons to The Rock have been there from almost day one with Cena when he started the rapper gimmick, uh, because it was obvious, you know, he was the the edgy promo after The Rock had departed the company, uh, and he has gone on obviously to also mirror The Rock's career path in trying to break into Hollywood. Um, one of John Cena's uh, <laughs> biggest accomplishments in my mind is that he will never be The Rock. He's like, who you call if you can't get The Rock? Um, and that sounds harsh, but I, I almost in a weird way mean that as a compliment. Um, 
And, you know, I mean, ultimately, there's a reason why The Rock versus John Cena was the match that suggested itself more than Stone Cold Steve Austin versus John Cena, right? Because the, there's just greater similarity there in the same way that CM Punk versus Steve Austin was the match that suggested itself on that front. Um, further to all of that, and I include WrestleMania 29 in this, if, if you were to look at the two almost as a series, it's like John Cena's career happened in reverse, and WWE love those those matches where we're not so much fans of them on this show, but WWE love those matches about passing the torch in air quotes, you know, where one icon of a generation loses to to the the subsequent generation, um, and usually that's done at the beginning of of a guy's big career, right? You know, John Cena loses to Roman Reigns at the beginning of Roman Reigns' big run on top. Well, The Rock left. You know, so there was no one left, really. I mean, you can you can say, oh, Triple H did, but let's be honest, let's be frank. Triple H was never really the man. You know, he kind of plugged the gap when they needed the gap plugging, but he was never really the guy like The Rock was. Um, and instead of getting that moment at the beginning of his career at, say, WrestleMania 21, when it might have otherwise happened, John Cena gets it at the tail end of his career when his main event stint is, is winding down in the match with, with The Rock at 28 and at 29. And one of the best things about the match at 28 is the result, is the fact that The Rock wins. And I That's remember it, yeah. being so elated on the night because it was one of those matches, obviously at the time we had no idea they were going to do the rematch the following year. Um, it kind of became instantly obvious when The Rock did win. But going into 28, you know, it felt so painfully obvious, oh, well, Cena's got to win because the whole reason they brought The Rock back is to give Cena the rub. So when The Rock actually ended up winning it, it was such an ingeniously shocking moment that it kind of it adds, you know, what we were saying earlier, a match being remembered, a legacy being what it is because of the ending. Another case in point here, you know, I think I think a large reason why this is remembered fondly is because of the, the ending of it. And I loved the way they did the ending as well. Yeah. You know, the fact that Cena's, Cena's own arrogance got the better of him and it was just like a split second thing. And Cena doesn't really sell the rock bottom afterward, afterward but for once it kind of works because I can't remember what Cole's phrasage is in the moment, but he phrases it in a way that makes it sound very literally like it was just three seconds that stunned Cena enough for The Rock to pick up the win, and, and that's how close it was. Everything about the presentation of it, you know, it has this great sort of carnival atmosphere with the live entrances and everything. I just think it's... it's case. You, you said with the Money in the Bank match that, you know, nobody does storytelling quite like WWE. This is a case, if you were to look at WWE's production style that we've been quite critical of in recent weeks, done effectively and in a manner that that, that feels fitting, I think this is the match that you would you would have to point to. Uh, yeah, I think that that ending was 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 terrific, and I love the fact that they then parlayed it into Cena having an Anas Horribilis where stuff just kept going wrong for him. You know, I thought that was a, a you know a rarely a rare subtle storytelling touch to have a main event to you know be that vulnerable for the kind of periods between WrestleMania 28 and WrestleMania 29, or even going all the way back to the, to the punk match in 2011, the you know, Cena was vulnerable after that, I suppose, which he'd never been before. Mm. Um, yeah. I mean, so obviously Undertaker for Triple H um, again, Undertaker for Triple H three, I hasten to add, everyone always forgets the good one at WrestleMania 17. I'll get that in now. Um, but um, yeah, the Hell in a Cell match, I actually really enjoyed it on the night. I just can't watch it now, watch it back now, because it's so long. It <laughs> just, just seems to go on forever. Um, but, you know, I know a lot of people like it. So, I mean, obviously we can't. It's what I think we, I, I would never not 
talk about it because it's it's a, it's a match that's really important to a lot of people. Yeah, it's not a match I would go back and watch in isolation, but I would watch it if I was going back and watching the other three that that sort of preceded it. It was so heavily rooted in what had happened in the years before it. Um, I do think it's got a great sense of claustrophobia about it that seems to suit Hell in a Cell in a, in a more sterilised environment. Mm, I'd yeah, say I was like, pleased they did Hell in a Cell at WrestleMania because it yeah. suited the feud as opposed to at some stupid random pay-per-view. I mean, they've certainly got that to recommend it. Absolutely. Um, CM Punk v Jericho as well. That's the you know the sort of the classic work rate match. I know we've talked about that match a lot of times before. I'm a lot more fond of it um, than you are. I guess the the stipulation, as I remember, was something that really um, threw it. I felt you. like it was. I felt like it was a typical case of WWE overacting it. Yeah. To, yeah, not being able to get out of their own way and just keep it simple. When when it was phrased very early on in a promo by either Jericho or Punk, I can't remember which one, as best in the world be best in the world. Like, I thought that would have been so compelling, especially because it didn't have all the grandeur and verbosity of Rock versus Cena and Triple H versus Undertaker. It would have stood out precisely because it wasn't attempting to stand out. Um, and when you then siphon in the idea of, let's just see who the best wrestler in the world is um, for the WWE title, but then they added in all the, the you know, the soap opera melodrama and your dad's a drunk and your sister's a drug addict and all that sort of stuff. And I, I see the purpose. And then they wrote, overwrote it even more by saying if Punk gets disqualified, yeah. Jericho wins the title. And I feel like that when you watch the match back, and for the record, I do like the match. It's not like I dislike it. Um, but I feel like when you watch the match back, it feels very much like they kind of feel obligated to pay lip service to this this storyline that got tacked on that they didn't want to do at the beginning where Jericho kind of, you know, tries to get in Punk's head with the how's your father thing. Uh, and then they sort of do that in the first five or ten minutes and then they forget about it. It's never referenced again for the rest of the match. They just get on with wrestling the match they wanted to do, which is best in the world, be best in the world. I've just realised that um, it is pretty much the, the Samoa Joe, AJ Styles how's wendy <laughs> yeah. um yeah it's 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 i think what's interesting is we go into extreme rules is you get the chicago street fight which is a, a sort of i think the better of the two matches i mean i i, I really love the rest of 28 match i think it's very underrated um but I, yeah that chicago street fight was fantastic and then of course you've got the cena the first um cena lesnar match since lesnar's return um they have their extreme rules match which I mean, how do you feel? I don't know if I've ever talked to you about that match before. How do you feel about that one? About which one, sorry? The uh, Lesnar v. Cena one. It's it's an oddity when you watch it back. Um, in a lot of ways, it's it's almost regressive from where Cena had come from Money in the Bank 2011 because it is it is it's in in a, structurally it's exactly the same as the Mark Henry match that he rightfully gets lambasted for at Money in the Bank 2013 or 2014 or whenever it was where Brock Lesnar absolutely annihilates him for 20 minutes and then he wins in a single move. And it's like, in that sense, it's the epitome of everything that was wrong with, with John Cena. Um, but it was very, it was, it was very unique when it happened. Um, and it was still strange seeing Brock Lesnar back in a WWE ring again. Um, I don't think it's aged very well. And I think that's probably going to be something we say a lot about Lesnar matches since he came back to the company. Um, especially because it came on the back of an absolutely phenomenal street fight between Jericho and Punk, which the street fight that Jericho and Punk wrestle on that same show, to me, 
that's the classic that they put together. That that an all time classic. Yeah, I, I agree. Would rate, I would rate that one extremely highly. If we were to do this in a list, that would be near the top for me. And not only that, they're wearing jeans for a street fight, which is I think is well, very exactly. very and important. It is, it is, but it's you know it's it's weird how much that just adds to the effect of it being a street fight. You know, come dressed as you are. There's a reason it's called a street fight, right? Like, exactly. You know, so make it a street fight. And it's a Chicago, just the fact they call it a Chicago street fight, they turn up in, I mean, just the presentation is, is indicative of why Jericho and Punk are known to have, were known to have in Punk's case and is known to have in Jericho's case, a good mind for the business. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Couldn't agree more on that one. Um, so yeah, CNB Lesnar, it's a funny Unlike, one. Unlike, by the way, I'm, I'm off cool. on one now. Unlike, by the way, when Gargo and Champa, yes, I'm getting a criticism of them in, uh, did a street <laughs> fight, and Johnny Gargano turned up dressed like Captain America because apparently he goes around the street dressed as <laughs> Captain America. <laughs> you know, oh, actually, oh. it's Johnny Gargano. I wouldn't be that surprised if he well, did. Well, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, like yeah, the Cena Cena Lesnar match is is like you say is an oddity. I, I I didn't like it much at the time because I was really hoping that Lesnar would come back and be like he was in two thousand and four and like have these, you know, kind of. I mean, I always just think of Lesnar as basically being a giant Kurt Angle, and um, <laughs> when he kind of came back and was doing all this MMA stuff, I was a bit like, Ugh, I can't be bothered with this. Um, and it was only when he got to the sort of. Uh, the punk matches, um, the punk sure. match rather, the uh, the <laughs> a year later that well, but it's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I think Lesnar, the Lesnar match has been around long enough now for us to say that you know at the beginning it was sort of suplex MMA city, and then they had a few competitive ones in the middle, and then we went back to uh, back to the kind of once well, you got the Cena match, you went back to the kind of dominant Lesnar match and. I, know. Remember, I mean, I remember those horrible Triple H matches were <laughs> relatively, uh, relatively competitive. The issue was that they were quintessentially boring Triple H matches. <laughs> oh, dearie me. What was interesting was that the, the Bala match that he had recently um, was essentially like a, a shortened a, a version, version of yeah. the SummerSlam one they had with yeah. Triple H. Um, all right, Bala so... does Triple H better than Triple H does. Oh, bless. I mean, the thing is about Triple H, it's easy to make fun of him, but I, you know, if the answer to me, if I was Triple H and people started going on about, you know, the Triple H match and stuff, I would just point to the year 2000 and say, there's my legacy. All right, see you later. Um, Which is fantastic if he wasn't still wrestling 19 years later. Oh, yeah. There, I mean, are, there well, are now fully grown adults in this world uh, who who literally fully grown adults by law who weren't alive when Triple H became a main event talent in WWE. This is true. I mean, we weren't going to talk about that today, were we? Because it's, <laughs> we, we, we wouldn't stop talking about it. So, um, obviously, later in, uh, so after you get to, um, you get past Extreme Rules, we get those pair of CM Punk Daniel Bryan matches. Um, over the WWE Championship. So um, Brian has that fantastic match with Sheamus, uh, the two out of three falls, which kind of came after the 18-second thing, which is a brilliant heel Daniel Bryan match. Kind of, if you go and watch that back, you can see a lot of the same stylings as we're seeing from him now. Um, and then you get Punk v. Brian in a pair of matches, which very much was, I guess, 
what people wanted out of the Jericho match at WrestleMania, which is basically best versus best, one versus one A. Um, and, and those are matches, I think, which made a huge um, stir at the time. I really liked the the first one they did at Over the Limit or whatever it was. Yeah. I remember not being particularly fond of the one they did at Money in the Bank, which I felt was... was I, I've, I've not watched it since, so I may be completely wrong. But at the time, I felt like the one at Money in the Bank was felt very samey for, for such a long match between two such talented performers. I think they did the whole AJ Lee thing with it as well. Yeah. Um, and I just remember feeling quite bitterly disappointed with that one. But the Over the Limit one, I, I really liked. Yeah, that was terrific, and I think it was very much like the uh, the Ziggler the Ziggler Brian one for that we began the show kind of talking about. Very similar kind of you know just here are two great wrestlers, let's see them wrestle. Um, the, the, the rest of 2012, um, there's not nothing massive going on really until of course we get the debut of the Shield. Oh yes, and from here on in, the rest of the decade was theirs. <laughs> no, quite. Um, um, the, I mean, the, the fact that their debut match is one of the best matches of the last 10 years at TLC in, in 2012, um, you know, I mean, that says it all really, doesn't it? Their first match on the main roster and they turn up and, and you know, make it. I mean, CM Punk blew the door open. Daniel Bryan kind of capitalized on everything to become, you know, the, the, me, the, the mega success. Um but the Shield were as important a part of shaking up the product. Uh, and, you know, you listen to them talk and they talk very, very um, openly about how it was a self-conscious effort on their side, on their part, to to shake up the product. I, and Seth was talking about this recently on Agent Christian's podcast and they felt like they needed to wake the locker room up and, and wake the talents up. And it watches that way on TV, particularly when you get a year down the line at the back end of 2013. It's like everyone suddenly wakes up. Uh, and the Shield were a major part of that, and they have this incredible match at TLC 2012 uh, after the AW at Survivor Series. Um, they have another great match at Elimination Chamber 2013 where they beat Cena, um, which was a big deal. Like I remember, I remember when they first turned up in in at TLC, and my mate was was telling me, "Oh, mate, you ought to watch this TLC match. It's fantastic." And I was still at the time. Uh, very, very jaded by the whole Nexus thing. You know, I was like, oh, it's just going to be another Nexus. They're going to turn up and there'll be a thing for like 10 minutes and then they'll get jobbed out and then they'll all just die away and it'll be nothing. And then they won at Elimination Chamber over Cena and that sort of got my curiosity. And I was like, okay, maybe this isn't going to be what it is. And then it, it, as the year progressed, obviously, you know, they had a, a fun match at WrestleMania 19. Uh, sorry, tw- uh, 29, 29, yeah. Um, I mean, if they'd had a match at WrestleMania 19, then God help me. But um, <laughs> well, there's, there's been about 17. That's not so yeah. bad. <laughs> WrestleMania, I'd still, I'd still fancy their chances of putting one of the best matches on. Um, WrestleMania 29, they have a full match. Then they had the, you know, the night after WrestleMania, they interrupt the Undertaker after they've already beaten Cena. So now you're like, oh shit, uh, that's after they turn up in a helicopter for God's sake. Uh, then they have a great sort of six-man with T.L.O. and The Undertaker. Then on SmackDown, they beat The Undertaker down. And when, it, when they put The Undertaker out, I was like, okay, they're the, they're the real deal. But all the way through that journey, you just get a series of just outstanding six-man tag team That's matches. That's what I was going to say. Which we, haven't, we haven't seen in, in, in decades. But it was that reinvention of a, uh, of a genre which became a, particularly a hallmark of Ambrose and Rollins that yeah. we talked about at, at great length on uh, on your uh, sister podcast. 
Um, but it, it's it's. I think the TLC match, because I was all in on the Shield from 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 the word go. Not only because I'd watched the Dean Ambrose stuff in FCW and the Rollins stuff in FCW, um, and really wanted them to be a success, but also just because I just think. The thing with the Nexus is essentially it always seemed like Wade Barrett and his merry band of jabronis. Whereas the Shield... <laughs> you, you the look, wrestling Robin Hood. Yeah, essentially. Whereas the Shield, you looked at them and you were like... you know, Wade Barrett and the Nexus always reminded me of like Skeletor and all of Skeletor's useless <laughs> minions in He-Man. Like, you know, Michael Tarver, go and do this thing. Oh, you <laughs> fucked it up. There's a column you need to write. <laughs> Might be more of a CF on that. Um, <laughs> but it's, it is, yeah, with the Shield, I think you, you had to take them seriously, like, right from the very beginning. Um, from the moment they put right back through that table, you kind of felt like, uh, I felt like it, they meant, they meant really did mean business. And they just had that, that fact, there's the presentation of them we've talked about so many times, the, the shaky hand cam promos, the mysterious mission statement they would never really tell you what justice was just that they were dishing it out um and you know i think that tlc match was an amazing statement of intent you know they they showed who they were as individuals and as a group within minutes of that match starting you know you got the ambrose um craziness you got the the reigns power you got the rollins cunning you got you got the whole package straight away and they just continued to refine that and they redefined what a six-man tag was and then when Rollins and Reigns started tagging with each other as a traditional tag team they you know they started that process that teams like American Al from the Revival would kind of continue a couple of years later um so yeah it's 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 a obviously a um like you say Punk and Brian began this but it, it was very much um the shield that continued it um so yeah look so you've talked about the other shield um six mans the rock punk matches um are, mm. are interesting have aged well i think mm-hmm. is probably the best way to describe them yep and let's talk about how you admitted i was right all along by saying the royal rumble one was better than the elimination chamber one. yeah it's interesting yeah it's funny the um the rumble one i watched in real time and i think i had such a high such high expectations of it that I think inevitably I was going to be a bit deflated, whatever happened, because I was so hyped up for it. I remember it was the first pay-per-view I'd stayed up to watch, like, in years, I think. You know, I went to work the next day on, like, two hours sleep, you know, and taught, like, five lessons. Like, <laughs> But then the Elimination Chamber one, you know, I watched the next day and we kind of watched it. My leisure room was very much, and I thought, oh, oh that's a shorter match. It's better. I really enjoyed that but yeah years later when i watched them back to back i do think the the rumble one was superior but nevertheless you know cm punk was always a guy i think who took his opportunities and i think he very much lobbied to wrestle the rock and he did a very good job of it well i really love i mean the royal rumble one in particular i think is absolutely fantastic and again would rate highly if we did this as a list for me personally um i mean the, the 2013 royal rumble match as well is is a, is a fantastic one um, but the, the title match between Punk and Rock, I think, is really well done. I like a lot of people may kind of sneer at the ending uh, where they kind of do the shield interference thing. Vince restarts it and whatnot. Um, but I think it works because the, the, the way it's presented is, is effective in the moment. And, you know, the commentary and everything gives it a sense of a real effective sense of pandemonium and what's going to happen next. Um, 
and the match itself is is a good solid essentially it's a it's a it's a it's a somewhat shorter rerun of the Cena match from WrestleMania 28 in in some ways because Punk focuses on the midsection and stuff um and uh, but it's it's a really fun match but I like the narrative that happens between the two of them where in the first one you know the Rock tries to play his kind of old veteran attitude attitude veteran shtick where he goes to pull the table apart and put Punk through it and stuff but Punk kind of intersects and puts the table back together and says, no, nah, no, nah, we're not playing that game. And then, But then by Elimination Chamber, Punk's the one, having lost the first match, doing it his way, he then starts to indulge in those kind of attitude shenanigans and he's got Heyman trying to interfere with the title and all that sort of stuff. And it still goes wrong for him. So I really like that, the 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 combination of the two together. The Royal Rumble one is, is the one I would pick out. And then, of course, you have Cena and Punk wrestle for the shot at the Rock on Monday Night Raw as well, which is a, I remember being a, a, a pretty, a, a, you know, an, a typical punk scene match in a lot of ways, but a good example of one. Yeah. No, and, I, and I know, I know you don't like it. I know the vast majority of people don't like it, but I, I still say I prefer the second Cena rock match to the first one. And I know that that's hugely controversial, but I do. I mean, the thing is, is about wrestling is that's the thing. It's a broad, it's a broad church, isn't it? Like, you know, I'd never tell anybody they were wrong for a, but for liking one match or another, um, I unless mean, it's, uh, unless it's seen or AJ Styles at SummerSlam. Uh, well, I mean, then then you are wrong. <laughs> yeah, quite possibly. <laughs> I mean, the, the match from WrestleMania 29 that obviously I love is is Undertaker be Punk, which I think is very, a, very good. an absolute masterclass in psychology. And I've always been on record as saying that of those streak matches, it's the cerebral ones that I like. It's the Edge match at 24. It's the Punk match at 29. Um, those are the ones that I, I, I really, really enjoy. Um, you know, the autumn match at, uh, at 21, for that matter. Um, so, yeah, I, I just think it's it's a brilliant match. Probably Punk's, I guess, is his second to last great match with the company. Um, so, yeah, he's got some uh, some significance there because, of course, he took some time off after that, came back for the Lesnar Fuse, and then, um, and then was pretty much, well... I, I guess he was kind of starting to, uh, to to wind down a little bit as a main eventer after that because he was kind of working against the Shield, working against the Wyatt family. And then at the point of his departure, he was kind of in the special attraction match against Triple H or, you know, so legendary plans state. But, um, yeah, that, that Punk Undertaker match will always be a special one for me, watching that on the night with the... Uh, there was that one moment where he hit him with the urn. I was like, oh, my God, he's going to do it. And I was sorry in the moment then. Yeah, it's no, it's it's an excellent match. I love the uh, the sense that CM Punk is there to hijack the Undertaker's career. He's like a highway, yeah, he's like a highwayman. You know, he comes out dressed in Undertaker's colours. The purple. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he has he has the manager as the Undertaker once had Paul Barry. He has the urn uh, during the match. He tries to do the Undertaker's moves. I mean, you know, again, I could I could talk at length with my PA review of the match, which I think I've probably written at some point um, in the past. I think it's it's outrageously good. Agreed, agreed. Fantastic match. Um, and, of course, that takes us to SummerSlam and perhaps the all-time... Uh, the all-time... Well, it's an all-time great SummerSlam contender, 2013. I think... Um, I can't remember what kind of ranking thing we did with Doc, where we did... 
I think we did like greatest pay per views or something, and and yeah, Doc did a Doc did a he, he ranked every WWE pay per view ever. Oh, not I that think. one. There was one that we did with Maz and Doc, oh. where we just did the top ten pay per views, and we kind of did you know those things that we do, and I think we had SummerSlam 2013 in that ten. I think, yeah, I think that was the last. That was the last. Oh, he got us on board in, to talk about yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. was the last. Yeah, we were guests on his last one. I think that's right. Um, and yeah, and I think 2013 is, you know, you look at it sort of end to end and it's just a, a brilliant car. But of course, the, the two matches at the top of it all, um, Brian v. Cena and uh, Punk v. Lesnar are, you know, very much the two matches that define 2013, really, aren't they? Uh, yeah, probably. Um it's funny, isn't it? Because you think of you think of, of 2013 largely in terms of, of the whole Brian versus Authority thing kicking off, uh, but then you kind of think, well, actually, you know, the great matches involved in that were really WrestleMania 30 and SummerSlam, and there were good there were good matches in between that, but those were the two great ones. Um, I've always said I prefer the Punk Lesnar match to the Brian Cena match. I think the Punk Lesnar match feels. Uh, like it has a little bit more heart and soul to it. Um, the the Brian Cena match is very very good, but like a lot of Brian's best matches, feels almost too clinically precise for it to feel real. Uh, whereas the Punk Lesnar match is so uh, just just raw and feral that it that it feels very very real. I watched uh, them both back actually quite recently because I was doing um, Skullduggery's SummerSlam. Um, tournament ultimate SummerSlam match tournament um and and you know i think i i like you i was always i was on the side of, of lesnar and punk uh, and i still am um but watching the brian cena match back it was also a brilliant example of how to build a legitimate star in the way that this the, the way they constructed the match around around Brian and there's the bit where he hulks up when he's upside down, which is just absolutely brilliant. And there's lots of nice little touches like that. And also the fact that he beats Cena stone cold clean in the middle of yeah. the ring, which basically nobody ever does, or at least at that point, nobody ever did. Can't wait for Cena to get that win back at WrestleMania this year. <laughs> That's the thing, isn't it? Like Brian, I, I said this to uh, Sasam a while ago, like Brian was lucky because Cena's injury um, meant that yeah he never got that that whole win back thing because by the time Cena came back the whole thing was kind of you know it would have been irrelevant so yeah I, I think it can't be underestimated in Daniel Bryan's rise the fact that he never he never had his heat flattened by Cena getting his win back as so many had done before greatest of all time John Cena uh, definitely not he's um, the uh, the anti-goat yeah so I, I love both of those matches um Another, you know, amazing match from from the back end of 2013 is, of course, we go back to the Shield again um, when they wrestled Cody Rhodes and you talk about someone getting their heat flattened, uh, wrestled Cody Rhodes and Gold Dust with Dusty at, at Battleground. And um, indeed. In, in, a, in a tremendously written story that had, that had gone on for some weeks. Uh, was was brilliantly put together from from the word go that that storyline and, and culminated in in a match that reminds you of how important it is for a match to be preceded by a well written story because of how much that just adds the intangibles to the actual mm -hmm. 
you know culminating match it's wonderful and, and not only that they you know like they come out to dusty Rhodes' music there's the bit where they they take dusty's bell and there's still has little touches about it. it's so emotive it is incredibly emotive. I still feel a little bitter about the fact that they then took that as a cue to put Cody and Goldust together as a tag team rather than let Cody continue to, you know, to ride that singles momentum he'd gathered since Money in the Bank earlier in the year and was really kind of going places. Goldust kind of ended up as a bit of an albatross around his neck, quite honestly, I think. Well, um, I mean, you know, Cody Rhodes is, um, yeah, Cody Rhodes not getting his opportunities, obviously, is a... It's worked a, a, out. Yeah, it's worked out from the end, doesn't it? <laughs> but it was certainly a theme, you know, he'd always get this this point of mid-card heat. Because actually, you know, if you'd have... After that match, if you'd have put Cody up against Randy Orson at the next pay-per-view and, and put the title on Cody Rose, nobody would have complained. Um, no, absolutely not. And you had, I mean, you had the World Heavyweight Championship still around at that point, which you could have easily... Because if you remember, Cena came back at... Hell in a Cell, I think. Wasn't yeah, and, it? and beat Del Rio, Rio yeah. in for for the title, um, and then Del Rio, I think, paid him. When did Del Rio do that thing where he came back? It was that the following year when he no, two years been, later, like it's 2015. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, it would have been. Yeah, and he came back and beat Cena in like ten minutes with a kick to the head, um, which I still really like that match. But um, one other match we've not mentioned from uh, 2013 that I still. I'm very fond of is that Del Rio Ziggler match for the world heavyweight title where basically Ziggler oh, God, is, I forgot Ziggler about gets it, his, yeah? his head caved in by Del Rio. What a match. I mean, that one yeah. again, that's the very beginning of the pond era <laughs> because um, Pretty much, yeah. I remember like Joe and Maz, like this is before we did all four of us previewing it. Joe and Maz previewed that pay-per-view and said that it was going to be really boring and that something needs to happen because literally there's nothing happening in WWE and <laughs> that match happened. Yeah, um, no, very. Yeah, it, it was. I, I think I think it is. It's again. It's a, such a shame. It's been tarnished that match by the fact that then they just couldn't. They couldn't work a situation in which Ziggler used that to definitively rise as a main event talent because that's what was, should have happened. Yeah, I mean, it's it's what's plagued Ziggler's career, uh, which is that he wasn't afforded closure to the narrative. Uh, that, that was being told because it was screaming out for a for a third match, um, and because I think they'd had two. Um, I don't know where. Yeah, because AJ uh, AJ oh, Lee threw rematch, the towel in, didn't she, or something? They had a rematch at Money in the Bank. I remember now. They yeah. Had the first one, then they had the rematch, and I felt like it was screaming out for. I remember writing a column at the time saying they ought to do a steel cage match at SummerSlam to finish this off, because like you say, AJ had kind of interfered and stuff. Um, and then instead of seeing that through, I mean, we got a great match with Christian instead, so I'm not really complaining too much. But instead of seeing that story through to a to a, a conclusion where Ziggler, like you say, was able to make... Because if he'd have got a, a final victory over Ziggler to retake that world title, it would have been the making of him, I think. Um, and But he was denied it. Instead, he got parlayed into some weird mixed tag match at, at SummerSlam instead that didn't really do anything. And that, that trend would obviously continue for years to come. It's funny, actually. It I watched... I watched some of Sam 16 the other night and um, the video package for the Ambrose Ziggler match is basically uh, a package of all the times when, <laughs> you know, basically in a kind of reality or style of when, you know, Ziggler's the guy that's seeing the show that didn't get the opportunity to kind of, you know, to, to, to win the gold. And um, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a shame. It's a shame that, that he kind of ends up becoming a parody himself, but 
you know, you can't, I always find this like, it's so difficult to determine like how much he's to blame for it and how much yeah. WWE are. It's like that, you know, it's one of those ones that's on both sides. There's lots of people from history. You could, you could look back at and say, you know, they really should have had more opportunities. And he is one of those, but he's also somebody that clearly has been so frustrated when those things haven't gone his way that maybe his behavior has stopped things going his way in the future. So it's a, it's a difficult one. It is absolutely. I mean, I get the impression um, that Ziggler probably thinks he's a bigger deal than he is in reality. And this is just the impression I get from his sort of behavior on social media and in interviews and stuff. Um, and I think he, his bitterness is justified uh, because I feel the first half of his career was, it was all on, you know, it was absolutely WWE not getting behind him. But then I think that bitterness got in his way in the second half of his career and prevented him from, you know, being able to turn things around properly. Um, and it's a shame, you know, but, you know, at the same time, uh, I think that, frankly, it got to, he's a, he's a very talented wrestler, but I do, if I'm going to be frank about it, think that he got surpassed by a lot of better wrestlers coming into the company instead. And, and I've, I've long held that I think Ziggler stood out naturally when the locker room was less motivated because he's such a naturally gifted athlete. But then when the locker room got motivated and you got, you know, NXT alumni coming in from, from the indie scenes and stuff who, who seemed to be more talented than the generation that preceded them, or at least certainly more driven. Uh, that's when he started to fade a little bit into the background. I think. Interesting. I think, I think my theory has always been that when the heat got ratcheted up, uh, he wasn't able to rise to the occasion, frankly. Couldn't cut the mustard, as Hulk Hogan once said about <laughs> X-Pac. <laughs> um, if, if I, that's probably what I would say if I was like a 1940s journalist. There we go. Or Hulk Hogan. Or Hulk Hogan. <laughs> Plan, Plan Mania's winning role, brother. Um, <laughs> all right, so we, we're, getting a, we're going a little bit long here, guys. So what we'll do is we'll, we'll call it a discussion there on 2010 to 2013, and we'll pick up with 2014 after we have previewed Fastlane um, next week and then perhaps discuss the Fastlane fallout the week afterwards because of course we'll have a few um, a few slow weeks until WrestleMania because not much tends to happen now between the last the last of the pre-Mania pay-per-views and Mania because they just play it ultra safe with the storylines um, now, now you've said that there's probably going to be like 17 CM Punk-like walkouts and all kinds of controversy. Well, I was welcome, welcome that. So, okay, come friendly bombs. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, until next week from the right side of the pond, do go and listen to uh, the rest of LAP Radio's shows. Uh, obviously, we've got the doc on Sundays now. Um, we've got Zaman on a Monday. We've got One Nation Radio and Global Impact on a Tuesday. Um, we've got Plan with Sports Today is Dead on a Wednesday and Imp on a Thursday uh, with the Perfect Ten. Um, so we'll be back next week. Uh, until then, from myself and Plan, it's goodbye. Bye.